This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Were you for Coleman? Um, I, I, I was somewhat ambivalent because there were so many rumors about Coleman. Like what? In terms of what he was doing or his family was doing. I had uh, In the mid-70s, Ike McKinnon was an internal affairs sergeant in the Detroit Police Department. One day, an old colleague came to him with some information about the mayor, Coleman Young. And uh, he said an informant of his purchased some drugs in Coleman Young's bar. And I went, oh, God, God. Coleman owned a bar? He owned the bar or his family owned the bar. It was called Coleman Young's Bar. They sold beer and barbecue and stuff like that. And someone in the bar, maybe it was his brother-in-law, Willie Volson, had sold drugs to this informant. When I got that information, I turned it over to my boss. And at that point, my supervisor says to me, I want you to handle this investigation. And I said, okay, sir, I'm, I'm a little sergeant, you know, and just you, you'll be the person who works on this case. Scared the hell out of me. Ike got to work. He surveilled the bar. He surveilled Willie Volson, the mayor's brother-in-law. And he spoke to the informant, who confirmed that she had bought drugs at Coleman Young's Lounge and Barbecue. So I started doing reports, and my supervisor said, I want all the reports to come directly to me. Did that worry you? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, God. So it was a sensitive matter. Oh, well, yeah, it's extremely sensitive because you get the mayor and you have... Uh, uh, well, how does that link to the mayor? I mean, it's his brother-in-law. I mean, we y'all know. Well, it says Coleman Young's bar. So if it's his bar, you know. Ike followed Willie Volson's drug sales from Coleman Young's bar to a series of dope houses. So he applied for a warrant. This culminated for us when we were getting ready to raid a number of places. But the warrant was mysteriously delayed. And then, something strange happened. And um, they said, everybody go to lunch. Well, you never do that. Well, we went to lunch and came back, and we did our raids and came up dry at every place. Every place was dry. So there was no question in my mind and the minds of the other people that were there that somebody had leaked this information out to them. What I can tell you is this, that my file, 7318, the deputy chief that assigned the case to me, he was seen with that file walking to the mayor's office. This is supposed to be a secret investigation. One, two, three, now! Last episode, we told you how Mayor Coleman Young pushed back against drug gangs like YBI that were seizing control of Detroit. But the mayor had more connections to the underworld than he let on. Today on the show, Coleman Young makes a few compromises to protect his family. Politicians in my eyes. 
I'm John White. Welcome to Crime Town. We used to call jumping on guys wreck, like recreation. As things got more violent and intense, became the wrecking crew. I'm not gonna let any group of young hoodlums or old hoodlums take this goddamn city over. Where did you get your power from? From Coleman Young, Mayor Young. And what were you doing at the time? Uh, connection to the underworld. How long have you all been married? Uh, 50 years. We was born together. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of love between you two and trust. No, I'm afraid of her, man. <laughs> this is Larry Mongo, who you met last episode. He's talking about his wife, Diane. One of the reasons he's afraid of her? Diane was a barber to many of Detroit's most powerful men. Who used to come in there? We had everyone that came in there, the top of whatever they're in. If they're executives, they came in, and uh, Dennis Edward of The Temptations, and Leonard Woodcock came in of the UAW. Jack's Barber Lounge was neutral ground in Detroit, a place where anyone could come for a shape-up and lively conversation. Were there people from... The underworld, the drug, oh man, we had them all. Let me just say this, everyone received the same service from me, and if they were criminals, I did not know it. If someone was wanted by the law, and if they came in my shop, you could not arrest them, because that's a safe haven. This is my house. And one day, a new client walked into the barbershop. So when the mayor walked in and just sat down, I had just finished a client. And so uh, I said, I hope you don't mind me cutting your hair. And I was saying that, referring to myself as a woman. He said, oh, he said, some of my best uh, haircuts have been by women. I said, yes, and some of my best friends are black. <laughs> so he laughed. Were you nervous about cutting the mayor's hair? No, no, because he was just like everyone else that came to my chair. I wasn't nervous with anyone else, and I was used to celebrities, and so no, I wasn't nervous. However... Diane's husband Larry was there, and he wasn't so confident. I'm looking like I'm scared to death. Then he said, well, girl, do you know how to shave? Yeah, I can shave. Then she started strapping that razor, and I'm like... Man, she really gonna save him. The whole shop, a shop full of men, we all got quiet. Now, I don't go to God much because I don't want God to remember I'm here. I'm like, oh Lord, God, please, please don't blow it. Man, she went to saving them every stroke we fell. Until she got underneath no, there. No, Where were no. you? No, I had no problem shaving him. But he has a mole right under his nose. And there's one little hair that sticks out, grow, was growing out of it. 
you know, I couldn't go under it. I had to go on top of the mold to get it. But because I am a professional and I know my limitations, I went to Jack, who was the master barber yeah. at that time. And Jack came over and got the mold, and I then I finished it. And the word spread from that moment on. She wasn't my wife anymore. What, what do you mean? mean by that? My wife got balls. I said, Lord. From that day on, so help me God. Ain't no punk in my wife. Diane became Mayor Young's favorite barber. As she cut his hair, they grew close, and he began to open up to her about his past. He just sat down. He just wanted to talk to me. And he told me how his grandparents, they, they did numbers, and, you know, and his father was a barber. But Coleman told Diane his father wasn't just a barber. This was during the period of prohibition. He knew where to get all the good booze. It was right by the river, he'd get good Canadian booze. And uh, he supplied the judges, the federal judges, with, with whiskey, you know, for a price, of course. And uh, made little money, but more importantly, he made friends. I mean, he told me a lot of really very personal things. The people that I knew best were hustlers. Uh, these guys who ran the crap game, you know, uh, who were cutting the blackjack game, uh, the old gamblers. You know, I, I've never been accused of being immoral, but uh, I've I never been accused of being too moral either. And as Mayor Young opened up to Diane, she opened up to him, too. I have um, five brothers, and my brothers was uh, part of the wrecking crew with the uh, Young Boys Incorporated. And did he have a reaction or say anything when you shared that your brothers were, you know, in YBI? Well, guess what? They lived in 8 Mile, so guess what? He didn't have to tell them to hit 8 Mile. They were already on the other side of 8 Mile. Do you understand what I'm saying? They didn't live in the city of Detroit. And that, you know, I felt that was what he needed to know. I mean, that was the moment that I think and I felt that we had become a little closer. We had become friends, okay, truly friends. And I was happy because I felt that I was like a confidant. The most powerful person for the 20 years Coleman Young was in the city was my wife. Because she had every politician, every judge, every wannabe person, everybody came to her. Jack's became a place where the mayor could talk to people away from City Hall. You know, certain things, if you want to talk to someone privately, you can take them and appear in the shampoo room. So if President Carter came into the shop and you guys want to talk, I'll leave. If he wanted me to stay, he'll ask me to stay. Soon enough, Diane was asked to stay more and more. And as Mayor Young's trust in her grew, so did Diane's power. People come to me and they knew talking to me was like talking to the mayor. If I said something, they on behalf of the mayor, it was I was it was on behalf of the mayor. You don't have to ask the mayor about it or anything. You come, I would answer for him. And there was one more thing Diane could do for Coleman. She could reach out to the streets. Coleman will whisper in my wife's ear. When I get in bed, she'll whisper in my ear. 
what Comey said, and that's how we communicate. And what kind of things was he telling your wife? Oh, well, let's just say this. When Aretha Franklin's father got shot, no one knew who did it. Aretha Franklin's father, C.L. Franklin, was a famous Detroit preacher known for his fiery sermons. These twins in us, one represent evil, one represents sin. On June 10th, 1979, C.L. Franklin was shot in his home trying to stop a robbery. He later died. After a citywide manhunt, the cops came up empty-handed. It wasn't just a tragedy, it was also a scandal. Detroit couldn't even keep its wealthiest and most famous residents safe. So Mary Young whispered in Diane's ear, and that night, Diane whispered in Larry's ear. Comey Young could tell the police to do one thing, and Comey Young could tell a person like me to go to the street and say, no dope gonna be sold, no prostitution, all drug houses, everything will be raided until they find out who shot Aretha Franklin. Wow. It didn't take long for Larry to find out what the Detroit police could not. Then one night I get a call saying that they had three people, three guys. I called Deputy Chief Young. Next thing you know, it made the paper that the Detroit police found the three boys who shot Aretha Franklin father. In Detroit today, thousands of people attended a funeral for a man who, when he died last week, was called a preacher's preacher. Mayor Coleman Young spoke at Reverend Franklin's funeral. We may never in our lifetime see his lights again. Then everybody go back to business. The mayor called on his connections in the underworld to help solve the city's problems. But those connections went deeper than the Mongos. And soon enough, the underworld would be calling on him. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I had always been a street cop, and I knew a lot of people in Detroit. Most of them I knew growing up on the east side. This is Sergeant Jimmy Harris. And one of the people he knew from the east side? Willie Volsan, who was a good friend of mine. I had been known since I was a kid. And uh, they had a barbecue place over on uh, Livernois, I believe it was. Young's. Young's Barbecue over on Livernois. So we used to go there a lot. Like you heard at the top of the show, Willie Volson was Mayor Coleman Young's brother-in-law, and he was allegedly selling dope out of Young's Lounge and Barbecue. He was what I would consider a likable scoundrel. <laughs> you knew what he was doing, but you had to look past it because he was so funny and nice, you know, and he was Kathy's father. Kathy. Mayor Young had several nieces, 
but Kathy Volson was his favorite. Kathy was always getting in trouble. She was always getting involved in something. And even though Jimmy Harris was a homicide sergeant, he had been given an unusual assignment. Follow Kathy around and deal with any problems that arose. You're not technically doing anything wrong, but it's no. a little weird to be like working overtime to look after the mayor's family. Were you well, thinking about that? Well, I didn't think about it being, I knew it was out of the ordinary, but the mayor was the chief executive of the city. And uh, if I got an assignment from the mayor, I carried it out. Did it feel like kind of babysitting? So? Yes. She liked that nightlife with the drug dealers and the money. And uh, she was uh, the mayor's niece. So she played on that ticket a lot. You know, I get called one o'clock in the morning, all wee hours of the morning. One night, Sergeant Harris says he got a call. Kathy was holed up in a dope house and needed some help. They took her in there, took her fur coat. I went over there about three o'clock in the morning, alone. I knocked on the door and uh, told the guy who I was. I said, I want to talk to somebody. This is not a raid. It's not nothing to do with police work. I just want to talk. He said, nah. He said, you know, I know who you are. He says, uh, you get this bitch out of here. He says, and uh, I said, what about the coat? So he had somebody go back and get the coat. I took Kathy. She, all she had on was panties and a bra. Put the coat on her, took her back to her mother's house. That was just one of many stories that I had, you know, dealing with the mayor's family. I think what really hit the nail on the head was when Kathy got involved with Johnny and she brought a lot of notoriety to everybody then. Yeah, I made some millions, some millions. I made a lot of money. I put it like that. I spent, I spent a, a half a million dollars buying furs, the condo, and the This hall. is Johnny Curry. After Mayor Young's war against YBI, the Curry brothers stepped in as some of Detroit's biggest drug dealers. And I was, my name was big. The Curry brothers, my name was real big. And one day, Johnny Curry crossed paths with Kathy Volson. I met Kathy at the gas station that we was running up on Warren, and uh, she was beautiful. Kathy was beautiful then. Wore her hair short. She was slim, nice body. So she was coming through, girls would come through. You know how guys be. Man, let me get her gas right there. So I said, well, I got your gas, baby. Don't worry about it. No, you don't have to pay for it. So let me fill you up. That's how I met her. Be honest about it. When I found out her uncle was the mayor, it pushed me more towards her then. And I got her. And then we got real tight. Mayor Young had an affair down at the Veterans Memorial Building. Again, Sergeant Jimmy Harris. I was sitting next to Aretha Franklin's brother and uh, at that table, and the mayor was on the other side of the table, and in walks Kathy and Johnny Curry in matching fur hats and coats. And I remember the mayor looking over at me, and he had a knack of looking at you with one eyebrow raised, and he looked at me with that look. I knew to get them out of there. 
I took him out in the hall and told him I wanted to talk to him, and I gave him some kind of story about, you know, and Kathy, this is my uncle, I can do I said, well, Kathy, and he said, yeah, and your uncle's kind of, he doesn't, I don't think he wants you here right now. I think it's best you leave, you know. I didn't know Johnny Curry. I found out later who, you know, who he was. You know, I mean, you know, what he was in. I knew who he was into, but I found out later on uh, that he was trying to ingratiate himself into the mayor's family. I said, well, maybe this is my foot in the door now to certain things I might want. Through Kathy, Johnny Curry got to know the mayor. Come on, <laughs> He just looked gangster in him, you know. He wasn't no, uh, no just pushover, but uh, I put it like this here. He loved his niece, and whatever she basically kind of said, he went along with it. I put it like that. He loved her deeply. Eventually, Johnny and Kathy got married, and Johnny started to invest in legitimate businesses like a nightclub. When I went for the liquor license and the gun permit, uh, when they shot me down the first time, you know how they go through the board and they shot me down. According to Johnny Curry, being married to the mayor's niece came with some perks. She just said something like, Johnny, hold on a minute, and they talked to him. And uh, next thing I know, I was granted my liquor license. And um, I filed for the gun permit and I got it. It wasn't a week. I didn't even go through a federal background check. And when Kathy got pregnant, Mayor Young threw his favorite niece a baby shower at his official residence. They apparently had a baby shower at the Manoogian Mansion when when their first child was born. Kathy and Johnny, were you there? Yeah, I was at a, uh, it was a baby shower, now you remind me. Again, Sergeant Jimmy Harris. What was that like? Nothing remarkable that I can recall. I mean, but it's a little out of the ordinary to have a drug dealer at the official residence with the mayor of Detroit, right? Oh, yeah. That's a little strange. Oh, yeah. Did, I mean, did anybody, did that seem to raise concern for anybody? It did. It was small talk, I guess, you know, whispers, I guess, but I wasn't involved in any of that. By the mid-'80s, the Curry brothers had risen to the top of the drug game in Detroit. And with their success came increased scrutiny from law enforcement. And I was informed that they was watching me. I was informed they had my little stuff bug. I was definitely informed. So I kept everything on the down low on the phones. And so when they said, Johnny, you're being bugged and this and that, uh, I took a heed to it. Johnny Curry says that he started to receive inside information from the cops. Who, who told you that? Uh, just one of the detectives. I would put it like that, a high-ranking person in the police Jimmy department. <laughs> we put a high-ranking, the Jimmy, <laughs> yeah, a lot of police officers probably even say to Johnny that I knew it, they probably said, uh, Johnny, you know, just be easy, they watching, questions are being answered, and that. so could have been Jimmy. I would be naive to think that I didn't know what Johnny Curry was doing because Kathy had a lifestyle that was indicative of her company. Um, so can we talk a little bit about the Damien Lucas case? Because it seems like that's where all this kind of started with the FBI kind of getting interested in. I really can't say anything too much about the Damien Lucas case because I don't know anything about it. And I wasn't, I wasn't, I know about it now, but I wasn't involved in that. Right. So I, don't. I, I think there are just a couple, like there are just a couple times where your name comes up. The Damien Lucas case. Sergeant Jimmy Harris doesn't want to talk about it. And neither does Johnny Curry. 
So I know this is a sen sensitive subject. I know what you're getting to, but go ahead. That Leon Lucas yelled you, and that there was retribution for that, and that his I heard that you know he was right, there, but his nephews were there. Uh, Damian Lucas was got, there. Was there? Guy and guy hit. Got killed by accident. I heard that. So what's what what happened? What's the, what's my take? What's the truth? That's next time on Crime Town. Crime Town is Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart Pontier. This season is made in partnership with Gimlet Media and Spotify. It's produced by Soraya Shockley, Rob Zipko, Samantha Lee, and me, John White. The senior producer is Drew Nellis. Editing by Zach Stewart Pontier and Mark Smerling. Fact checking by Jennifer Blackman. This episode was mixed in sound design by Robin Shore and Sam Baer. Original music this season composed by Homer Steinweiss. We recorded some original music at Rust Belt Studios in Detroit, in partnership with Detroit Sound Conservancy. Special thanks to Carlton Goals and Maurice Piranahead Hurd. Additional music by John Kusiak, Kenny Kusiak, John Ivins, and additional mixing by Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Politicians in My Eyes by Death. Our credit music this week is Wacky World, written, produced, and performed by Detroit Soul Ambassador Melvin Davis. Archival research by Brennan Reese. Archival footage courtesy of the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History and Kirk Chaffetz. Show art and design by James Cabrera and Elise Harvin. We've got a great website with bonus content for each episode, like photos, videos, newspaper clippings, as well as a full list of credits and a transcript. Check it out at crimetownshow.com. Thanks to the Detroit Free Press, Peter Batia, Jim Schaefer, Mary Schrader, Jun Fun Han, the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University, Mary Wallace, Melissa Sampson, the Detroit Historical Society, Brendan Roney, Martin Torgler, Vince Wade, Bob Berg, Richard Cardone, Charlie LaDuff, and everyone who shared their stories with us. Detroit is an amazing place, and we're honored to tell a small part of its story. Alex Bloomberg is the podfather. Whenever he goes to our edits, we all get quiet. Now, I don't go to God much because I don't want God to remember I'm here. I'm like, oh, Lord, God, please, please don't blow it.